Father, we do thank you so much that we are hidden in Christ. We are one with Christ because of your magnificent plan to save sinners, to send Jesus to make an atonement for our sin and provide this so wonderful uh, relationship with you and the rest of the triune God that we can be one with you. Lord, we worship you for this. We praise you for this. Lord, help us to reflect that joy and that commitment to you in the way in which we listen and study your word right now. Lord, may we study it with hearts that would obey, with minds that would be engaged with the desire to live out these truths. Lord, help us live these things as we see them in our passage today. Lord, as always, we pray for those who don't know you. Lord, it is our heart's desire that they would come to you today, that they would hear the gospel, they would understand the truth of Christ and him crucified. And Lord, you would move in their hearts so that they would have faith and then repent for justification. Lord, save them even today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is a privilege and joy we have to study God's Word together. If you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9 is often considered the hardest chapter in the Bible. But if you read it, what you find out, it's not so hard to understand, it's just hard to accept. There's just something deep down inside of most humans that grate against some of the truths that are articulated in Romans chapter 9. I've seen this on several occasions where pastors with great excitement and great enthusiasm start the book of Romans. They preach. They preach all the way through chapter 8. Then they get to chapter 9 and realize, you know, it might be good to take an eternal break from Romans, come back to it in heaven. Romans 9 is a difficult text, and we're going to jump into it because it deals with these things that we discovered in our study of Matthew. We got to Matthew, some of you remember. We got to that part where Jesus says, to you it's been given, but to them it's not been given, and that troubles a lot of people. And so we want to know a little bit more about this idea of God's sovereignty and salvation, the nation of Israel, and we find these truths in the book of Romans, particularly chapter 9. So let me read to you verses 1 to 5, first five verses of Romans 9. Now, I didn't give, last week I wasn't feeling good during this service, but I preached last week my sort of introductory sermon uh, to the crowd on Saturday. So it is up on the internet if you want to sort of go back and remind yourself of where we are. Uh, but today I'm picking up, and we're going to actually take some time to do a little more introduction, but then we'll look at these verses in particular and study them together. So let me read these to you, and then we'll jump in. Paul writes down, and it's inspired by God. Romans 9, beginning of verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of God. Well, my purpose today, as always, is to give you the basic truths of the text at which we're looking. And for us to see today, it's the heart of Paul, the the messenger of God's truth, a, a man who came as a messenger of the truth of God, a man full of character and I'm going to enumerate later on four traits of the Apostle Paul that will help us swallow, I think, what we're going to read later in the chapter, uh, Romans chapter 9. But before we do that, like I said, I wanted to continue to introduce this, this chapter to us, and I wanted to talk for a moment about the will of God. There's a lot of discussion in Christian circles about the will of God. Some Christians go on great journeys to find some something secretive, something hidden, something mysterious, to to find this mysterious, elusive will of God. And and oftentimes, Christians are are disappointed because they never quite exactly find it. Or if they find something, maybe they're not too sure if it is or is not the will of God. 
Other Christians, sometimes they're a little bit intimidating to be around, they seem to have God whispering in their ear all the time, telling them what His will is. And they sort of live life telling you, well, God told me this, and God told me this, and God told me to wear socks today, or God told me not to wear socks today, and God told me this. And you sort of are a little bit intimidating because this person, it seems to get this flow of God's will for their life, even in the small decisions, but I'm having a hard time just finding God's will for the big decisions. Volumes upon volumes have been written about how to find the will of God for your life, to unravel, to, undiscover, to discover it, how you know you've married the right spouse, chose the right job, how you know you're going to retire at the right time. And you've got to discover this. A lot of these people say you've got to discover this mysterious will of God because you don't want to be on plan B for your life or plan C or D or Z or triple Z. You've got to find this elusive will of God. Now, what does the Bible tell us about the will of God? As we look at Scripture, it becomes evident that the Bible talks about God's will in two ways. Maybe you want to note this down, that the two wills of God. Now, we can break it down, and theologians have, of course, broken it down into smaller and smaller types of God's will. But I think generally we can lump the way the Bible speaks of God's will into two basic categories. The first way the Bible talks about the will of God is what is often called His sovereign will, the sovereign will of God. This is also what is called the decretive will of God, what the triune God has eternally decreed in the intertrinitarian relationship. This would be his secret will. This would be his hidden will, his will for all that is to happen, his will for everything to happen in the universe, all that is to take place, everything that ever happens, it's according to his sovereign will. If it weren't that case, then he would not be God. If he was sort of subject to what was happening in the universe and had to react, then he would no longer be God. He would be subject, he would be under some greater power. No, this is God's sovereign will, and because he is God, he is over everything. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, the things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I, God, will accomplish all my good pleasure. God does everything. He defines all of reality. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, God works all things, all things to the counsel of his will. Now, sometimes God's hidden will or His sovereign will is at least partially unveiled for us in life or even in Scripture. Who can forget Joseph suffering? We learn about this young man who's sold into slavery. It looks terrible. It looks like perhaps God's not even in this. He's abused. He's beaten. He's accused wrongly. He's thrown into jail. All along, no one could see God's hidden will. No one could know that God was up to something much greater than this. No one would know that God would prepare him and raise him up to eventually save millions of lives all across that part of the world during a great famine. But in the end, it's revealed that we, we get a chance to see how God's sovereign will all along was, was working. His brothers come to him who had sold him into slavery, begging for food. And, of course, he says very memorably to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is God's sovereign will. Sometimes people talk about another idea, God's permissive will, but I don't think that does anything to get God off the hook, as though God allows things to happen that he doesn't really want to happen. Uh, that's not the way God works. God purposes everything, and though he doesn't reach down and do evil, he certainly has a purpose for evil. It's all part of God's providence, whether it's a smiling providence, as we talked about a few weeks ago, or his frowning providence. So this is the first way the Bible talks about God's will. His hidden plan, his secret, decretive will for everything. And by the way, Christians who spend a lot of time trying to find God's hidden will or his sovereign will are on a fool's errand. We don't know God's hidden will. Unless he reveals it to us, unless he unveils it to us in the future sometime, we don't know God's hidden will. And it's not commanded of us in Scripture anywhere to go find God's mysterious hidden will. Go have an epiphany. Go have some kind of revelatory moment and find and unveil. Go on this journey to find God's will. The Bible doesn't tell us to do that. Not only are we told that we can never know the mind of God, the Bible does not tell us to go on this hunt. Some Christians try and some Christians even write books on how they've 
uncovered the secret will of God. But if you read about these things, what you discover very quickly is that they look something more like astrology or the New Age movement. In fact, one of the best-selling books in recent history is this book called Jesus Calling. It is an abomination. If you get an early copy of that book, the author of that book, and she very wisely edited this out in later copies, but if you get an early copy, a first edition of that book, you'll note at the very beginning of the book, she credits a new age lady for everything she understands about hearing from God. That's what these things look like, and so many Christians have gone to this folly and this paganism to find out how to hear from God. We we cannot know the mind of God. We do not know His secret will. The only thing we can truly know is what is written for us in Scripture. God may give us inclinations. God may give us urges, but it all flows from Scripture. And so this represents the other will of God, and we see it in the Bible, and this is called the moral will of God. Sometimes this is called the preceptive will. You hear the word precept there. It's, it's rules, it's observations, it's truth, it's theology, it's doctrine, it's commands, it's thou shalls and thou shalt nots. You think of places in the Bible like the Ten Commandments. We should not murder. We should not steal. We should love the Lord only. We should not covet so forth. Some people talk about a display of a different kind of will of God is his will of disposition, but this is closely related to moral will. When God is pleased or displeased, it has to do with people obeying or disobeying his moral will, his preceptive will. So this is his moral will. We have these two wills presented to us in Scripture. Again, you can break it down probably into further descriptions, but I think this is a good way of thinking the way the will of God is described for us in Scripture. The sovereign will of God, which is kept from us, it's hidden, it's secret, and the moral will of God, which we as humans, the moral will of God represents what we as humans are responsible to know and obey. And so we don't look to all these Secrets, we don't try to find the secret that is not found in Scripture. No, we look to the clearly revealed moral will of God given to us in Scripture. Paul told Timothy, everything he needs is found in the Word of God. Famously, 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We find in the page of Scripture an all-sufficient revelation of the will of God for our lives. We need not look at leaves and circumstances and personal impressions and dreams or anything else to guide us and equip us for life. Though the Bible tells us to gain advice from others, it's always through the lens of Scripture. We look through Scripture to understand God's will for our lives. Well, that's a little bit of a bonus. I I always like to throw that in there when we talk about the will of God because Christians can be so confused about finding God's will for their lives. And I would just say to you, open the Bible, read it, study it, and try to obey it. That's the will of God. Find his moral will. And like I said, where there is moral will of God given to us, there is human responsibility. Where there is God's moral will or God's moral law, there in that place mankind is responsible to obey that law, laid out in his precepts, laid out in his truth. God reveals himself to us in that way. Well, my point in bringing up the two wills of God is to ask a line of questions. Can the moral will of God contradict the sovereign will of God? The answer is yes. God gives all kinds of commands that are violated every single day. And if something happens, we know whatever happens, it's a part of his sovereign will. He's in complete control. Even if he doesn't reach out and do evil himself and violate his own law, it's all part of his sovereign will, which is in contradiction to his moral will. The moral will of God says you shall not testify falsely against your neighbor. The moral will of God says you should should worship God and his son Jesus alone. The moral will of God says you, you should not covet. The moral will of God says we should find our rest, our salvation, him only. The moral will of God says we should love our neighbors. The moral will of God says you shall not murder. And yet, every single day, those things are violated. In fact, all of those were violated in the greatest and grossest of all sins, 
the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This was the signal violation of God's moral will, the crucifixion of Jesus. All of those moral laws and wills were broken, weren't they? So in terms of God's moral will, the false trials, the execution of Jesus, this was a a violation of God's moral will, of God's moral laws. But the sovereign will of God, it was completed, it was fulfilled, it was something that God had planned before the foundation of time. So here we have in the cross of Christ a a perfect example of, of God's moral will laid out for us in Scripture being violated to serve us a greater plan of God, His sovereign will. Jesus was crucified, killed before the world began. Peter says as much there in the early church as the church was forming. Acts chapter 3, verse 14, he's talking to the religious leaders in particular there in Jerusalem, but, but Jews in general. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer, remember Barabbas. You asked for a murderer to be, to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. He says, but you guys did this unwittingly fulfilling the sovereign will of God. So you violated the moral will of God and unwittingly carried out, without even knowing it, ignorantly, you carried out the plan of God which was foretold by the prophets, Acts 3, 14 to 19. Way back years ago when we were marching through the book of Romans, we studied Romans chapter 8, we learned that we live in this era where God's moral law will be or moral will will be violated again and again and again. And it's God's sovereign will that it happens this way so that against that black backdrop of sin and depravity and death, He can show us how wonderful and beautiful His mercy and grace and love and also His wrath against sin. We would never see these things unless God in His sovereign will planned for a time that His moral will would be violated. And so we learn in Romans 8, all things, even death, even hard things, even difficult things, even sin, all these things work together for our good, for those of us who are called. And the beauty of this is that one day, at least in one sense, one sweet day, there will be a day when God's moral law will never, ever be violated again. His sovereign and His moral law will run in perfect parallel. But until then, in this era, in order... For God to make this beautiful display of His grace and His kindness and His saving love, in order for Him to display His wrath against sin and death, against the devil, God has allowed His moral will to be violated. It's part of His sovereign plan. hope this makes sense and you're not asleep yet. Now, when it comes to doctrines of, uh, of grace, the doctrine about God's sovereignty and salvation, God choosing or predestining a soul to be saved, electing a person for salvation, it is important to remember that both His moral will and His sovereign will uh, are talked about in the Bible. Both things are discussed in the Bible. When you read about Jesus judging and condemning Israel... To the Jews, he says, essentially, you're not elect. This is not coming to you. There's been so much rejection, and God's judgment, this is part of God's sovereign will, and this is he sort of uncovers part of God's sovereign plan that in this era, Israel will reject. This is a, a form of judgment. It's part of God's plan. You hear Jesus speaking like that, but you have to remember that it is the same Jesus who stood over Jerusalem and cries out, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem. How many times I would have gathered you under my wings like a hen and her brood. And you hear Jesus talk about his coming judgment and the fact that he judged that fig tree as a symbol of his judgment coming upon Israel. You have to remember just a chapter or two earlier, Jesus is weeping at the plight of mankind, the death of his own friend Lazarus. In fact, you see this oftentimes. You see in the Bible a display or a discussion of God's sovereign will, and very close by you'll see a discussion of 
His moral will. You read Ephesians, we are predestined to be adopted as sons before the foundation of time. But then we remind ourselves, not far after that, that the moral will of God is that whosoever will may come. Like I said, this is an interesting phenomenon. You, you read about this in the Bible on several occasions. When God's sovereignty, God's sovereign will is, is discussed or laid out for us, oftentimes close by, there is the moral will of God discussed as well. Let me give you a few examples. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it's, it's talking about God's sovereign plan. I'm sorry, it's talking about God's moral will. It says, God, verse 9, is patient towards you, not wishing, or you could say willing, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I mean, this is God's moral will, that, that people would repent. In fact, it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 20, God commands every man everywhere to repent. God wants people to repent. This is His moral will. This is stated in Scripture. But just before that, in 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, these people are being kept for the day of judgment. God's sovereign will. Their purpose on earth was to glorify God, not by repenting, not by being saved and having faith, but to glorify God in being judged. God's sovereign will. Let me show you another one. In Philippians chapter 1, it says, uh, shockingly, I think for some Christians, it's been granted to you to believe. I think a lot of us think that we take the first step and then God sort of reacts to us, but it says, no, even your belief was given to you. It's been granted to you to believe in chapter 1, verse 27. Same thing in chapter 2, verse 13. It's not you, it's not your will, your power that enables you to do what's right. It says, it is God who is in you both for the willing and the working of His good pleasure. God's sovereign will. And I think Christians... I think most Christians think like this, even if they don't understand all things about salvation and election and all these things. They would say, if they did any good, they would say, but I give glory to God. It's God in me. It's changing me and moving me and manipulating me and motivating me and giving me the desire for these things. It's not ultimately me, it's God. I think Christians naturally would believe that, though they might, as a human, might have a hard time swallowing the full idea of God's sovereign will. But this is God's sovereign will. But the verse right before that... Verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2, it says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God's moral will. Man's responsibility. You better repent. You better have faith. You better respond. You better obey the word of God. But you do it knowing that anything coming, good coming out of you was given to you. Every good gift, James says, comes from the Father above. Give God the glory, not yourself. One more example, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. This is a verse that you know, most of us are familiar with. From little children, we learn this verse. Oh, man, whoever believes God gives them the right to become children of God. God's moral will, human responsibility, right? We're supposed to believe become children of God. But then it says, verse 13, the very next verse, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So ultimately, someone believing and becoming a child of God is ultimately God's work on them, not their work. The problem is, most of us, we sort of skip over, and this is not just true for verses about God's sovereign will and election, it was true about other doctrines as well, we tend to sort of ignore the verses we don't like very much or skip through them very quickly and focus on the ones we like. And so we read John 1, 12 really loudly, and then we just forget about verse 13, that it's right there. I think a lot of people want to believe the exact opposite of what we sing in that great hymn, In Christ Alone. What does it say toward the end? Christ, Jesus Christ, commands our destiny. Most people, they want to say, I control my destiny. It's up to me. It's me who controls 
my destiny. From, from birth, I think we're wired to think that God must bow to our decisions, that there is something above God, there's something more powerful than God, there's something bigger than God, and God must react and respond and live under that great thing. And what is that great thing? Human will. This is something that was popularized by someone who was kicked out of the church in the 4th century, a guy by the name of Pelagius. From that era, there are people who have believed similar to him, maybe not as strongly as he believed it. So you have people who are semi-Pelagians or what are called Arminians, people who essentially agree with the Catholic Church and in terms of who is ultimately responsible for salvation, and they would say ultimately it is man and God has to fall at the altar of man's choices. God bows to man's will. I think we're born thinking that way, and I think because we're born thinking that way, and because it's sort of a a confrontational truth to ever even mention the sovereignty of God and salvation, I think because of that, a lot of us grow up in churches who just sort of bypass the idea of God's sovereignty and salvation. They just focus on the moral will, human responsibility, and never, ever even mention the idea of God's sovereignty and salvation. Many of us grew up, we only saw that one side, believing that God's moral will exists, believing that it really boils down to human responsibility, and it has nothing to do with God's sovereign plan. Nevertheless, both aspects, God's choice of us, and then our subsequent choice of Him, these things are both talked about in Scripture, God's sovereign will and God's moral will, election, predestination, God's complete control of everything, and human responsibility. Repent today and be saved. Because we never do that, we, get a, we never study these things, we get a distorted ver- version of God, we get a distorted version of, of Christianity, of salvation. People often lean towards that old belief by Pelagius, we start to ignore or even reject any idea of God's sovereignty. God sort of becomes this weak-kneed, pale-skinned grandpa who's just up in heaven just hoping that someone will respond to all the work that he's done. But he can't do a thing about it because he has to bow at the altar of man's decisions. He has to bow at the altar of man's will. But if you play this out, if you really think through this clearly, what you'll discover is if you believe this, ultimately what you're saying is that people in heaven are simply better than people in hell. In the end, because it boils down to a human's, a person's decision, in the end, the people in heaven are just, at their base, better than everybody else. And they got to heaven because they were better And that has salvation by works, not by faith alone. Whenever you start to dethrone God, whenever you start to strip him of his sovereign plan, you start to elevate man and put him on the throne. Other people have gone the other way. We don't know a lot of people like this, but other people go the other way. They look at verses regarding God's sovereignty, and they neglect verses about human responsibility God's moral will. This uh, became popularized in the 1800s. It was a a movement called hyper-Calvinism. Now, listen very carefully. I know a lot of Calvinists who are hyper, okay? I'm not talking about Calvinists who are hyper. I'm talking about an actual movement called hyper-Calvinism. They literally believed that you do not even need to repent or have faith. You just sit listlessly, and God will save whom he wants to save. You don't have to pray. You don't, they even call it the anti-missions movement. You don't have to go on mission, missionary journeys. You don't have to tell people about Jesus. God's just going to do what he's going to do. There is no human responsibility at all. And again, this is a, a distortion of Scripture. By the way, it's not what Calvin taught. It's not what the Calvinists taught. It's not what Reformed people taught. In fact, if you look at some of the greatest missionaries, they were avowed Calvinist and Reformed people. The father of the modern mission movement, William Carey. But people do this. Maybe they don't, wouldn't even believe what the hyper-Calvinists believe. Maybe they, they, they just live like they're a hyper-Calvinist. And what's strange to me is I found a lot of people who reject any idea of election or predestination or God's sovereignty or God's sovereign will, and yet they live just like a hyper-Calvinist would. They never tell anyone. 
about the gospel. No, if you get misinstructed or if you ingest verses of the Bible that only appeal to you about the nature of salvation, you're going to get an unbalanced and eventually a heretical view of salvation and God, His will and how He saves an individual. Both of these things are taught, human responsibility and God's sovereignty, both of these things are taught in Scripture. If you lean from one extreme to the other, what you're trying to do essentially is to put God in some sort of logical box that's inside our finite minds, and we cannot do that. We cannot fully understand this reality that we are responsible, that we must choose, that we choose freely. There's a volitional element. We're not, no one gets dragged kicking and screaming not wanting to go to the kingdom of heaven. No, we willfully choose God. But we do so, according to Scripture, we do so predicated on God's moving in our hearts according to His sovereign plan. Now, you may ask at this point, well, what about free will? Haven't you ever heard of free will, Pastor John? Well, the concept of free will came from Pelagius, most notably. Later, there are Arminians. You, would not, you will not find. In fact, the only time it says free will, the phrase free will in the Bible is talking about God's free will. And, and I would just ask you that question. Are you more free than God? Because that's basically what free will means. It doesn't just mean choose God. It means you have this unbounded and God must bow to your decision-making. That's what essentially free will teaches. And so you have free will Baptists who follow the Arminian way, the semi-Pelagian way. You have Wesleyans and Methodists that follow the same thing. And they say that in order for our love of God to be genuine, we have to be completely free to choose. And so we start out in heaven free. and Start out on earth as we're born. We start out free. And the problem with that viewpoint is that you just won't find it in the Bible. How does the Bible describe people before they're saved? It's free? Neutral? Unbiased? Sort of middle road type people? Impartial? Well, the Bible teaches we're dead in sin, that we're enemies of God, that we're lost, that we're blinded by the God of this world, Satan. That's not free. The Bible says in order for us to be saved, we must first be washed, Titus chapter 3, washed by the regenerating Holy Spirit. We must be born again. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again. Something has to happen to your heart. You must come alive spiritually for you to even respond. And that can only happen the sovereign moving of God. Yes, we must choose. It's not that our wills are not involved. We must choose. We must repent. We must have faith. But we do so knowing that ultimately it is God in us for the willing and the working of His good pleasure. Now, back here in Romans chapter 9, Paul is getting ready to launch into this discussion, pretty heady stuff when it comes to God's sovereignty and salvation. He's going to say things like, Jacob I loved... Esau, I hated. He's going to say, I created humans, some of them as vessels for honor and mercy, some of them as vessels for judgment and destruction. And he's going to point them eventually to this idea that in this era, as, as, as Jesus had come and inaugurated the kingdom, in this, in this era, until Jesus returns God has sovereignly put His blessing upon Gentiles, not Jews. And though there is a remnant, and though there will be, always be a time when there are some few Jews who believe, right now, biblical salvation, justification by faith, this is a blessing that Gentiles, generally speaking, are the ones whom God is blessing with that knowledge and with that salvation. This is part of God's sovereign And this truth, especially for those people who were there at the church at Rome, those people who were were the Judaizers, who who felt like you had to become a Jew first and then you could become a Christian, this would have troubled them. This would have bothered them. They might have been tempted to look at Paul as sort of an anti-Semite. In fact, they did that down uh, when he went down to Jerusalem. They thought of him as an anti-Semite, even though he was a Jew. And 
And so what Paul is doing in this, these first five verses, Paul is, I believe, wanting to soften the blow and wanting to talk before he talks about the sovereign will of God and God's election and his moving, Paul starts essentially talking about the moral will of God, the disposition of God about the souls of man. And Paul displays, even in his own life, this desire to see people saved, this, this love for others, this, this moral desire that all people repent, that all his, of his people repent. It's displayed in Paul's own evangelistic desire. And I can't think of a better way to introduce the doctrine of God's sovereign election than to start with an evangelistic plea, an evangelistic desire. He's going to show them this is ultimately out of his love for them. And though it may be hard to swallow some of these things, it's, it's going to go down a lot easier if you see this out of, out of a great passion. It's flowing from a great passion for God ultimately, but even for people, that they would repent and follow Christ. All right, let's look at our text, and, and, and hopefully this will help us understand the things that Paul is saying here. Several things that Paul mentions, it helps us know his heart, it knows, helps us know his feelings toward them, and know his, you know, I, I think that probably someone could have heard his teaching on God's sovereignty and, and, and skewed it and said, man, you, you think we're just a bunch of robots, and you, there's no love here, there's no mercy here, there's no kindness, but he starts out and, and buffers all that with this discussion of how, how much he loves and how, how deep anguish he is over that people would not repent this is sort of reminiscent of chapter 1. There you get a little peek into his heart. What do we see about Paul's heart? I think we need to see these things about Paul, mainly so that we can understand what he's getting ready to say, but also because I think we're supposed to follow Paul as he follows Christ. We're supposed to emulate these characteristic character traits. So these are number two, if you're writing notes, these are the characteristics of Paul. There are four of them. Number one, authenticity. Look at verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now here's, here's three layers of authenticating himself. I'm speaking truth. I'm speaking truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness. The Holy Spirit bears witness. Here's essentially what he's saying. For anyone who does not respect Christ, who does not believe in Christ, who rejects Christ's deity or Messiahship, this is not a big deal to invoke Jesus' name. People curse in Jesus' name all the time. But for a man like Paul to invoke the name of Jesus, to invoke the testimony of the Spirit, for him to say this, this is a big deal. And he's saying, I'm telling you the truth about this. I'm not lying, he says. The negative, there's no deception here. I'm not playing games with you. He says, my conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. My conscience is not run contrary to what I'm saying. And he's going to say that he wishes his desire, much like God's desire, he, he wishes for repentance and his countrymen. He, he desires for them to respond. He's not playing any games. He's an authentic man. He's sincere. He's a man who's eager about these things, and he doesn't hide it. Paul is not just blowing smoke. He's not playing word games with people. He's not hiding, beating around the bush. He's an authentic man. Is that, would that be the way your friends describe you? Authentic, authentic? Real? Not hiding? Not covering things up? Not trying to put on a show? Authenticity. Number two, love for others. We see this great passion here, and it's not just love here, but it's the, the root word here, pathos, and it's where we get the words empathy and sympathy. Paul grieves. He doesn't just say, I feel your pain, to get them to vote for him. When he's all alone, when no one's watching, he is in anguish over the condition of the souls of his countrymen. Verse 2, look at it. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. It bothers him. It nags him that people, his own people, his relatives, the people around him, aren't repentant. It bothers him. And he's not just drawing up tears for the moment. It's unceasing. It's always 
And it's all for the right reasons. I found this to be true. Sometimes in the evangelical world, you find people who, are, who have a lot of evangelistic zeal. It seems like they seem to be, people know, know them as sort of an evangelistic person. And sometimes when you dig, you find like what we're finding in Paul, a man of sincerity, a man of authenticity, a man who, who has an unceasing desire to see people saved. But sometimes you dig a little bit and you find there are ulterior motives. They have other reasons. Maybe it's just bragging rights to other Christians about how many people they're giving the gospel to. This man was authentic, and he had an authentic love for others. And this authentic love for others led to a third characteristic, and that is evangelistic zeal. Verse 3, I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, I understand they are cut off. These people have rejected Christ. This is a part of God's plan. I understand that. They are cut off. The Jewish nation is cut off. They're being judged by God. Jesus, back in Matthew 13, this is a, 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 a message of judgment. It's not been given to them. And whatever they do have will be taken away. It's a message of judgment. But Paul has such anguish about this. He says, I wish I could be cut off. This is a big deal. If you're a Christian, you know this is a big deal. The best thing you have is your relationship with Christ. And he says, basically, I, I, I would, if I could, forfeit that so that they could have a relationship with Christ. Well, even if he could, he, even if he wanted to, even though he wants to, he couldn't do that. But this just shows his zeal to tell people of Christ. And again, it goes back to what he says early in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what, it's what pushed him to say, I came to you that, that you would know Christ and him crucified, talking to the Corinthians. It's what made him continue to go out and share Christ again and again and again. If you were in Men of the Word several years ago, we went through the book of Acts together and we found out that Paul in his early journeys went to an area and got beat so badly that they thought he was dead and drug his body over to be thrown into a pit. He revived, left that region, and a couple months later went right back to the same city, preached the gospel. His evangelic zeal is what gave him a, the ability to overcome verbal abuse, physical abuse, stoning, beating, shipwreck, persecution, slavery, imprisonment. And Paul is getting ready to say, God chooses whom he chooses. Vessels for blessing, vessels for wrath. And you can imagine, someone might say, so Paul, that means we don't have to evangelize, we don't have to tell people. No way, Paul says. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. That's the message of Christ. In fact, the word of Christ is not talking about the Bible, though the word of God is, it contains the message of Christ there. It's, the, it's a different word there. It's the message of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Christ. That's how people are saved. And he realizes that's God's plan, that people go out and are beaten and hurt for telling the gospel to others. And, but that gospel going out is how God is going to save his children. Paul is a man who deeply is convicted about the sovereignty of God in salvation, but also deeply convicted about sharing Christ with others. He was a man of great evangelistic zeal. Someone similar in that way later on was a man by the name of John Knox who went to the country of Scotland where he cried out, give me Scotland or I die. He was not talking about, well, he was involved in the military. He was not talking about military salvation. Ultimately, he was talking about eternal salvation. Henry Martin, a missionary, who said, oh, that I were a flame of fire in the hand of my God. David Brainerd, let me burn out for God. Jonathan Edwards, William Carey, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, Adoram Judson. These are men who wholeheartedly affirmed the doctrine of God's election, but also are some of the greatest evangelists of all time. It is a straw man argument to say, oh, if you believe in God's sovereignty, then you don't evangelize. Oh, look at Paul. Look at all these great men. Do you have a great zeal for the lost? We're looking at Paul here. Paul is a man who had great zeal. He's an example to us as someone who affirmed both God's moral will, God's desire that people would come to repentance, the responsibility he had to take that message to others, 
that we also affirm the sovereign will of God. Heard someone talking about Acts chapter 4 last week. He said it's interesting in that early church, regardless of persecution, trial, imprisonment, regardless of all the hardships of just living in the first century, you could not stop Christians from telling the gospel. It's the opposite now, isn't it? You can't get Christians to tell the gospel. Perhaps we need a little bit of persecution, a lot of fire under us evangelistically. Paul loved his people so desperately he wanted them to know Christ. He's a man of authenticity, of passion, of evangelistic zeal. He also had, number four, a love for biblical truth. Paul tells us why he loves his countrymen so much. It's not just empty sentimentality. It's not just, boy, I just remember those days of of growing up as a young Jewish boy. It just, you know, my heart is warmed about all the traditions and all the things that are Jewish. His love for them flowed from a love for biblical truth. Verse 4, they're Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. His love ultimately for them flowed from his understanding of biblical truth, of the story, the flow of human history, the great narrative, the meta-narrative that covers all of history and how God chose these people, how God miraculously saved them time and time again, gave them all these people, ultimately giving them the Messiah. Paul's a man who valued biblical knowledge, valued biblical truth. Some years ago, we looked at the different prayers of Paul that Paul prayed for the various churches to whom he wrote. We just analyzed those different prayers and, and identified things that he prayed for over and over and seemed to come up a lot in those prayers. One of them, if you remember, was knowledge. Tells the Colossians, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul laces his conversation with biblical knowledge, with biblical truth. His whole argument is based on biblical truth. He had just spent a whole chapter, chapter 4 in Romans, establishing that this truth that he is preaching about justification by faith alone, this is not something that he's just drummed up or that Jesus himself drummed up, though he did it in eternity. It's not something that just showed up when Jesus showed up. It's something that has existed from the beginning of time. Even Abraham, even David were justified by faith. He's a man who looks to the Bible. He looks to Scripture, and the knowledge of the truth is something he's passionate about, and it flows from him, and it gives, gives him a great passion for others. And it's not just about the getting or the obtaining of biblical knowledge so that you can have a bunch of trivia in your mind. It's, it's synthesizing, synthesizing it. It's putting it all together. It's making sense of it and responding to it. It's applying it to your life. This is the truth that made Paul, Paul. This is the truth that made him authentic, that made him love others, that made him evangelize others. And the more he studied the truth, the more he loved the truth. Perhaps I would say... Some of you who struggle just reading your Bible, maybe the problem is you just don't read your Bible. The more you read your Bible, the more you study it, the more you're going to want to study it. And that's what happened to Paul. Well, let me wrap this up. A couple of applications, and we'll be done. Application one, as we get to these hard things about God's sovereignty, as we get to these hard ideas about God's sovereign choice, His sovereign will, His choice, His election of people, don't forget the moral will of God, as it's displayed right here by this very trustworthy source, Paul, a man of authenticity, a great passion of evangelism. And I would just say this. Our church, though we lean very strongly in the Reformed or Calvinistic tradition, we do not have a a, a cold-hearted, mechanical, inflexible angst against anyone who might not believe exactly what we believe. We want everybody to struggle. We all struggle with truth and with obedience and with understanding in some way or another. It may not even be about election, maybe about something else. And, and I want you to know this, even if you don't agree entirely with everything that the elders believe, it's okay to struggle. It's okay to continue to search the scripture and want to understand. Maybe it's not, all, it's not all clear in your mind. That's okay. That's fine. I think this is the heart of Paul here. I think it's why Paul wrote this at the beginning, because he knows this is, this is difficult. This is hard for people to swallow, particularly for them in that era that, that God had chosen Gentiles, not Jews. This was a, a hard thing for them to hear. And God, uh, God led Paul to 
write this little bit of a biography of himself so we can peek into his own heart and see this is not just some mechanical, hard-hearted academic. It's a man of great passion and zeal and love for others, a man who lives consistent with the moral will of God. So I want you to know at NBC we welcome everybody, whatever area you struggle, even if it's these, these areas or other areas, we welcome those who have a desire to know the Word of God and to obey the Word of God. That's my first thought as we come to these hard truths, and I think that's what Paul was thinking as well. The second application, and we're done, is this. Let's all be like Paul. As we read this, our consciousness should smite us a little bit, right? Authenticity, love for others, evangelistic zeal, love for biblical truth. I, I fail in all of these things, don't you? Let's follow Paul as he follows Christ, all right? Let's pray that God would grant us this. Lord, we do pray that you would be moving in the hearts of people here. Lord, I know that no matter what I can say from the pulpit, my words do not save souls. My words cannot bring a regeneration to somebody's heart. Only the work of the Spirit using the Word of God can birth a new life. So, Lord, we pray that even as I preach this morning that there would be those who have sensed the Holy Spirit moving in them and drawing them to the truth of Christ, Him crucified, a desire to be covered in His righteousness, to be trusting in His sacrifice on the cross. Give them a great desire to follow Jesus. And Lord, give them faith and repentance. Even these moments. Help them call out to You in a desire that would love and obey You. Only You can do that and we rest in that. For all of us, Lord, we want to continue in that faith and repentance. We want to dwell on all those things. We want to think about things that would honor you and worship you and things that would glorify your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us live these things out. Help us practice these things, just as Paul did as he looked upon Christ. Help us in this, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.